Thanks to Ben. Um, again, just to introduce myself, I'm Ashley. I get to, the joy to serve here as the assistant pastor. And it's a privilege to get to come and uh, proclaim God's word to you. Um, you'll find it really helpful to have your Bibles open at Joshua chapter 23 and 24. We only read 24, but we'll be covering 23 as well. Uh, let's just begin by asking for the Lord's help as we pray. Uh, the Gospel of John uh, records uh, Philip, the disciple, saying to Jesus, Jesus, show us uh, the Father and it will be sufficient for us. And the Lord Jesus said, uh, have you been with me so long? Uh, and yet you do not know. If you have seen me, you have seen the Father. And so we ask, Spirit of the living God, would you show us Jesus? We've seen him already in the text that we've sung, in the prayers that we've heard. Lord, would you show us Jesus in your word? that we might glorify and worship you and see your faithfulness to us. We pray in his name. Amen. I wonder if you've come across the, the Talking Jesus survey. Uh, it's titled The Perceptions of Jesus, Christians and Evangelism. Uh, and it was written, or it was researched by the Barner Group in partnership with the Evangelical Alliance and the, the Church of England. And they, and they surveyed thousands of, of churchgoers and non-churchgoers um, spanning multiple age categories, asking a variety of different questions. Um, and, and it was this particular question that they posed to practicing Christians, those who read the Bible and attend church regularly. It was really insightful. The question was this. When you consider the factors that positively influenced you to become a Christian, which had the most impact? When you consider the factors that positively influenced you to become a Christian, which had the most impact? Answer number one, family. Answer number two was attending a church service other than a wedding or a funeral. The second thing that was most influential for people becoming and staying, maintaining being Christians was attending a Sunday service like this. I wonder if that's surprising to you. It shouldn't be. What is exactly happening as we gather here, as we come to church? I mean, maybe you have walked in off the street or you've been brought by a friend and you're wondering as well, what on earth is happening here? Um, well, Joshua 23 and 24 touches on some of these realities, and we're going to dig into that and look at the implications a little bit later. But perhaps you were surprised as you came in to hear we're going through the book of Joshua. Um, let me, uh, we've been dealing with this in our evening services. Let me summarize uh, my short heading of what the book of Joshua is. It, it's the promise keeping God delivers. The promise keeping God delivers. And we've, we're in the fourth section of the final part of this book, which centers on the land. Section number one looks at God's people entering the land. Section number two, they, they take the land. Section three, they divide the land. And this section that we're in today is they serve the Lord in the land. So let's jump in. 20, chapter 23, verse one, please have your Bibles open. After a long time had passed, and the Lord had given Israel rest from all their enemies around them, Joshua, by then, a very old man. This is the, the moment in the movie, uh, the action-packed lifestyle of the hero protagonist is, is behind him. We fast forward to an old man full of years. He's settled down, usually living in a house by the beach somewhere. But rather than lounging on a lilo, free from responsibility, Joshua's retirement plan is slightly different. He uses his final moments not for enjoyment, but actually for exhortation. And in a manner just like Moses, Joshua, he gathers all Israel 
in verse 2, and he gives them a farewell speech. Joshua's dying concern is that God's people would not forget his faithfulness, but they would remember it and continue to live in the present day. And just as an aside, it reminds me of the brother, Barry, who has just gone to glory, who whether in home or in hospital or in a hospice, <laughs> exhorted people to come to know Jesus and exhorted people who knew Jesus to continue to be faithful to him. Praise God. And my summary of this chapter, these two chapters is the Lord's covenant faithfulness requires the covenant community to, firstly, he's going to look at it in two points, firstly, love and obey. Love and obey the Lord. The, you, know, you might think it's a bit weird that we're talking about the land. You know, what, is, what is the land? What is Canaan? Um, actually, the end goal of this, of this slip of land was it was to be a place that would be inhabited exclusively by worshippers of the one true God. It was to be a, a, a new Eden, a place where God uh, walked with his people and his people served and worshipped God. That's what it was to be. Israel were to be a, a kingdom of priests, Exodus tells us, so that the rest of the world, as they see this worshipping community, the nations would flood and gather to hear about this wonderful God, about all that he's done, because they see the people living in accordance to his ways. One nation under God, a place where holiness and righteousness dwell. That was the end goal. And the book of Joshua gives a frame-by-frame -frame kind of account of God's faithfulness to his own good promises. And that's what Joshua underscores here in verses 3 and 4. He reminds the people that he's the God who has conquered your enemies and he's the God who's allotted you an inheritance. And what's the response of his people? It's this, verse 6, loving obedience. Look with me at verse 6. Joshua says to the people, be very strong and be careful to obey all that is written in the book of the law of Moses without turning aside to the left or to the right. This echoes what God had told Joshua in chapter 1, verse 9. God said, you're to be strong. You're to obey the law of Moses. And now the path for Joshua, the path for Joshua, Israel's successful leader, is now the pattern that God's people should walk in. The path for Joshua is the pattern for God's people. And so in order for Canaan to be this new Eden, life lived in this community must be in accordance with God's good and gracious and holy living word. The law of Moses, Israel's law, it reflects the compassion and the love of God who rescued them. And if you feel a bit iffy about when you hear God's law, you think, oh, I'm not sure that's a good thing. Can I encourage you to go back on our website to our series that our pastor Paul Reese did on the, the Ten Commandments. And it shows you the beauty and the glory and the wonder of God's law as it reflects his character and shows what life in obedience to it looks like. Joshua says, be careful. Be careful. Don't turn to the left or the right. Keep a straight path. And it's not, um, it's not a cold obedience like a dry and dour, grin and bear it, kind of hold on and wait till it's over kind of obedience. No, God is a personal God who seeks fellowship and a dynamic relationship with his people. Look at verse 11 with me. Joshua says, be very careful. The end of verse 11, be very careful to love the Lord your God. He echoes Deuteronomy 6, that great command, love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your mind, with all of your soul, with all of your strength. 
You see, the centerpiece of of God's promises in the book of Joshua is the land. And this is the place, this is the physical bit of real estate where God's people live in community with God. They're to serve and love and live and worship him. And Joshua is concerned that Israel get this. There is dying words. Firstly, it's what God in all of his glory and matchless majesty deserves. But secondly, it's what the neighbors that surround this nation need to hear about. As they around the pagans witness God's law in action, they come to see God himself. And just as Israel were to pattern themselves on the loving obedience of God's leader Joshua, his his path was to be their pattern. So our path as the church, oh sorry, our pattern is to be the path of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. You might be wondering again, uh, again, what has this land got to do with today? Does it bear any relevance whatsoever? Well, it brings us back to the question in our introduction. The place on earth where the world is going to see what relationship to God looks like today is not the land of Canaan. It's the church of Jesus Christ. The pattern for Charlotte Chapel and other worshiping communities like us in Egypt, uh, in Egypt, <laughs> in Edinburgh, and across the world, <laughs> the pattern for Charlotte Chapel and other worshiping communities is the path of Jesus. But firstly, you need to be in, in a relationship with God in order to walk in his ways, okay? Um, look with me at verse 8. Joshua uh, exhorts the people that you are to hold fast to the Lord. And that's a, that's a technical word. Verse 8, hold fast to the Lord. And it's, a, it's a, um, the word in the ESV is translated, you're to cleave. It's an old word, isn't it? You're to, you're to hang on to. It's kind of, it's marriage language. It's the same word that was used in Genesis chapter 2 to talk of the marriage in Adam and Eve. And ma- he, they cleaved together. It's f- forsaking all other loves in unity, in commitment with the other. And so the only way that people can serve God is by first being in a marriage-like covenant relationship with him, forsaking all others and committing to him, committing to Jesus Christ. And we do that through, through faith in his life and death and resurrection that we've been singing about, him who, who bore the sins that we committed went to the grave and rose again, and through faith in him, that's how we become part of this community. This is how we become part of a church. It's not by simply attending. It's not by having our name on the roll. It's by faith in Jesus Christ. And through faith in him, we become united to him. The the, the Bible actually calls us a bride to him, our husband. It's incredible, right? And it's then through that that we live out this relationship. 1 Peter Verse, uh, chapter 1, verse 22 says this. Now that you have purified yourself by obeying the truth, believing that message that I just said of the gospel, faith in Jesus, now that you have purified yourself by obeying this, love one another deeply from the heart. It's once that you've believed this that then you can live out those commands. Pardon me. It's not to earn his favor, but it's in response to his gracious giving. And so our covenant community here, life at Charlotte Chapel, should reflect what life looks like 
in covenant community, in relationship with the gracious and life-giving God. And so here are a few things that it should look like, and there are tons more. Jesus said that it is more blessed to give than to receive. Through Jesus' poverty, his people became rich. And therefore, life in our community should look like a generous life. There shouldn't be those within our community that are, that are poor, that cannot eat, that struggle. We have a fellowship fund to make sure that that doesn't happen. If you don't know about that, come and see me. In Israel, the poor and the marginalized were to be championed and looked after through, through particular laws. So it should be in the church. But that then care within the church should outflow into this world. Our giving should go towards gospel proclamation causes and also causes uh, that support the love and care of image bearers in this world, whether it's homelessness or war relief. And we do that, praise God, but we want to seek to do that more and more and more. And that's why our, our budget as a church family that we, that we recently voted in includes some of these things, but it requires a 5% increase from the members. And so here's a practical application. We can review our giving in order that our community might reflect more readily the generosity and the kindness of the God who rescued us. We should be a serving community. Uh, God's word says each person has a gift and we're to serve God with the strength that he gives us. Uh, Romans 12 tells us that our lives are to be living sacrifices. And so this community here as we worship should reflect the God who gave himself for us. Perhaps you can think this week, how or who can you sacrifice? Who can you serve more readily this week in order to reflect the God who gave himself for you? Could be your neighbors. Could be somebody in your family. Could be somebody in this church family. Perhaps you could reflect upon actually how you actively serve as a church member within this church. We've got so many areas of need from the, the AV that's being so effectively run right now to welcoming, to stewarding, to um, uh, youth work, to finance teams, a myriad of different things. If you're a member of this church or you're thinking about becoming a member and you want to serve, come down to the Connect Corner after the service and we can talk to you about a way that you can more readily reflect the God who served you by serving him. And remember, it's in response to God's loving kindness that we, his people, lovingly obey him. We don't earn his favor, but we respond to his favor. Joshua continues. He wants God's people to see that God's faithful to his promises and that his faithfulness to his promises is a good thing, but they should also be concerned by it. Why? Well, look at verse 14 with me. He says this. Exhorting the nation now. He says, I'm about to go the way of all the earth. You know that every promise has been fulfilled. Not one has failed. Great, good news. Cast your eyes down at verse 16 of chapter 23. But he says, if you violate the covenant, the Lord's anger will burn against you. Just as he brought about every good thing, he fulfilled every one of his good promises. So if you break your promise, he will bring disaster for disobedience. There are powerful and persistent enemies that still remain in the land. There is a crud that still clings 
to Canaan. And where sin remains, there's a danger for God's people, okay? Israel are going to be swimming. God's people will be swimming in a culture of idolatry from fertility, rain gods, to harvest gods, to, to rampant, the rampant sexual nature of that community. And Joshua is warning them in verse 12, Israel, if you turn away, and if instead of cleaving, instead of uh, holding tight to the living God, you, you cleave to, you cling to, you hold tight to these other gods in this community. If you intermarry with them, then verses 13, it says, they will become snares to you until you perish. Verse 13, he repeats it in verse 16 as well. They will become a snare to you. Um, I've recently been reading um, and I've finished the book Watership Down. I didn't read it as a child, uh, so I got to read it as an adult. Um, if you haven't read it, don't worry. It's, a, it's a, a handful of brave rabbits that journey through the English countryside looking for a home, and they face a variety of struggles. And there's a, a, one of the main characters is a guy called Bigwig, and he's brave, and he's powerful, and he's fearless. And actually, many in the group feel safe just because he's there. There's a moment in the story, though, where all, it seems like they've found their place of rest, and, but they fail to heed the warning of one of the smaller rabbits who senses danger. And in a scene that, scene that snuck up on me, maybe it snuck up on you too, there's an almighty crash and a squeal, and Bigwig is snapped up, and he's caught in this metal snare that ties tight around his neck. And regardless, regardless of his strength and his size, as he kicks and as he squeals, the noose just gets tighter and tighter and tighter. And I think that's something of the picture. Oh, by the way, he does live after that. The rabbits pick out the peg and he, and he survives just so that we don't have any nightmares over Sunday lunch. But I think that idea of a snare is something of the picture that Joshua is wanting to give Israel. He's warning them. And we're being warned too as we read this. Now, the enemies that we face today as God's people, they're not the same as they were in Canaan. But actually, we're swimming in a culture of different idols. We're in a culture that's rampant about sex. And to match it, we have indwelling sin in our own hearts, in our own lives. Yes, sin has been defeated by Christ. We've sang about that. He bore it himself. He buried it in the tomb. And through his death and resurrection, we're united to him. And so we can actually say no to sin, Romans 6 tells us, and yes to righteousness. And yet, indwelling sin still remains. Not reigning sin, but remaining sin. Okay? And if we're not careful, the various trappings and temptations of this world that our own hearts lure us into will be a snare to us, choking us round until we die. And we want to heed the warnings that our God gives us, lest we be choked. What do we need to do? Well, we need a God-centered, conscious effort to choose him, to choose life over death, to choose obedience over self-service. And what we need for that is a vision of who our God is. And that's what our second point is. We're going to serve him only. Look with me at chapter 24, verse 1. Joshua, uh, he assembles all the tribes of Israel at Shechem. And he summons the elders and leaders and judges and officials of Israel. And, and they present themselves before God. Now this is a, a regathering, probably a little bit later, of God's people. And if you don't know, Shechem is uh, geographically significant. You can read about part of it in Genesis chapter 35. It's where God spoke to his servant Jacob, who was later called Israel. 
And God renews this promised covenant that he made with Abraham. That he's going to bless him and that he's going to have descendants and kings are going to be among his descendants. And he's going to have the land. And he's going to be a blessing to the world. And it's also the place in Genesis 35 where Jacob says to his household right now, throw away your household gods. Verse 2 and following, Joshua here is acting as a, as a covenant mediator and he's bringing out a covenant renewal ceremony between Israel and her king, the Lord God. And Joshua wants to exhort the people with his dying breath to love this God exclusively and so he gives them some incredible reasons. Why? Verses 2 to 4, he's the king who chooses. God is the God who calls people out of darkness, Joshua is saying. Remember your ancestors? They were a nation of pagan worshippers. They were blind to God. They didn't know him. But because of God's sovereign, loving, and choosing election, rather than heading to hell, actually God chose them out of darkness to follow him. God is the God who chooses the least likely, not seeing good in us, but lavishing his own goodness upon us. He's the God who chooses. He's the king who rescues. Verses 5 to 7 of chapter 24. Since birth, Israel have been slaves, slaves in Egypt, under harsh masters. But God, in his grace, he purposed a rescue mission for them. Praise God. And the plagues that decimated Israel's enemies, Egypt, actually God's people found shelter from them. The ransom price for his people was a spotless lamb. And unlike the Egyptians, through faith, his people, through faith in its blood, they could take part in the crossing over of the Red Sea been rescued from death to life. He's the king who rescues. He's the king who provides. He provides protection, verses 11 and 12. From the moment they left Egypt, God had been their guides. Enemies that wanted to curse them actually, inadvertently, ended up being blessed by God. Their curses turned to blessings upon God's people. That's, that's our nature. The curse that sin brought us has been turned to a blessing because of our God, because of Christ. Praise God. Israel had been given everything that they need to stand, all the strength they needed to stand in opposition and fight because of the Lord their God, the one who provided protection. He was the one who provided an inheritance as well. Look with me at verse 13. Apart from God himself, apart from the matchless king, who was the greatest provision of all, Israel now stood in the greatest of gifts to them, the land. Verse 13 says, So I gave you a land on which you did not toil, and on cities on which you did not build. And you live in them, and you eat from their vineyards and their olive groves, and you did not plant them. To build a city, right, like Edinburgh, no small thing. It's towns, it's houses, it's facilities. But for that thing to be built and handed over to you as a gift. If you've ever done any gardening, you know that planting and rearing a plant is a difficult thing. But to be given a mature vineyard that produces delicious wine for free, to be given entire olive groves with zero input. All of God's glorious gifts, but especially the land, are marvelous and bountiful acts of his grace towards them. And notice where the, center, the action centers, right? If you take with me verses 3 to 13, you might have picked up on it in the reading. The NIV translates this personal pronoun, I, when God's speaking, I, 18 times in 10 verses. 18 times in 10 verses, I took, I gave, I assigned, I sent, I afflicted, I did, I brought, I destroyed, I delivered. The glorious work of salvation in the life of God's people is done exclusively by the sovereign king himself. 
He alone is responsible from beginning to end. It's a work of unmerited grace by the gracious king of the universe who lavishly loves to give his goodness towards us. Imagine, imagine God's people being the recipients of a salvation so encompassing that every single one of our needs was supplied wholly by the God of creation. This could be our text, right? The Lord could say to you and to me, I took you out of darkness. I gave you eternal life. I gave you life in my son. I assign to you an allotment with God's people and an inheritance forever. I afflicted you in order to bring you close to me. Ephesians 1 tells us that we were chosen before the foundation of the world. Nothing good in us. We only bring sin to the table. Colossians 1.13 says that we were called out of darkness and brought into the wonderful kingdom of light of his son. 1 Thessalonians 1.10 says this, that we've been rescued, not from the plagues of Egypt, but from the mortal, hell-deserving sin. We've been saved from the wrath to come, it tells us. How? Not by just some lamb, but by the lamb of God. He was delivered over to death, and he was raised, uh, delivered to death for our sins and raised to life for our justification, Romans 4.25 tells us. And the inheritance that we have been given is of infinitely more value than this slip of land. Ephesians continues, chapter 1, verse 13. When you believed, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of his glory. Eternal life in a renewed creation, face to face with our Savior, the Lamb without blemish. That's our inheritance. Actually, and with it, we'll get cities and vineyards and olive groves. But Christ, he's our treasure. The meek inherit the earth. Who wouldn't want to serve a king like this? That's what Joshua is saying. And that's what the Holy Spirit is saying to us through this text. Who wouldn't want to serve a king like this? So choose this day, verse 14. Fear and serve the Lord with all faithfulness. Charlotte Chapel, serve and fear the Lord with all faithfulness and throw away the gods of your ancestors. I doubt many of us are carrying mini gold, wooden, uh, stone gods in our bags as you've come into the church this morning. Although actually if you are coming from a background of Hinduism, maybe that is you. And so the text here is saying throw away that false god and trust in the God of the universe. But for us here at Charlotte Chapel, it's likely that we don't have those in our handbags. But there will be things that you've carried into this building in your hearts this morning that are functioning as things that we find significant and satisfactory and we look for our security and that are not the living God. And so here's a question to you, believer. What is in your life at the minute that is causing your commitment to this king, this king that we've just looked at, to waver? What is not only distracting you, but it's actually in danger of derailing your faith? Just take a minute. What is that thing? throw it away. The thing that you're placing too much satisfaction in, the thing that you're looking for too much significance from, the thing you're rooting too much security in that isn't God. Now, let's just run this around. Um, It could be something to do with the family. Maybe you're striving for the ideal. Maybe it's it's kids. Maybe it's uh, the hobbies, the education, the entertainment. 
uh, the close family time that is exhausting all of your resources, that you've got no time for church, no time for discipleship. Maybe it's work and the desire to achieve, to be recognized, the long, unyielding hours that give no time for God. Maybe it's the spouse or the partner or the friendship that's dominating your thoughts, pushing thoughts of God out. Maybe, as for me this week, it's thinking about uh, my home, it's thinking about other things that are distracting me, finances, health and fitness. The command is to throw away these things. Now, you can't throw away your family, okay? You can't throw away your job. But... Following repentance and faith, perhaps actually what you need is a reordering of family priorities to bring to the, to the forefront Bible reading and prayer and discipleship. Okay, don't leave your job. Please don't leave here and say to your boss, I'm, you, it, I'm struggling, so I'm throwing my, throwing my job out. Maybe you need to do that, but likely no. But what maybe you need to do is just reorder your priorities. Too busy at work. Maybe most employers give you a, a lunch break. Why not take that break in order to read the scriptures and pray, making God a priority? I can't give you what to do, but I'm just throwing out some suggestions. This marvelous fridge magnet verse of Joshua, I bet many of us have got it in our house, right? As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. How can this be an increasing reality for us this week, this month? Israel's response is really positive, right? Verses 16 to 18, we'll do it, we'll do it. It's a textbook answer. God saved us as if we'd have anybody else. No, they say, would never forsake the Lord. He brought us out of Egypt. He's performed great signs. And we could easily imagine ourselves saying something similar, couldn't we? Jesus died for my sin. I wouldn't forsake him. And yet we make small compromises here, compromises there. Verses 19 to 20 actually give a real dose of realism. Joshua's like, you're not able. <laughs> you're unable to serve the Lord. We need to hear that, right? They commit anyway. And their witnesses against themselves. And if you know your Bible, the next book of the Bible is the book of Judges. And it's harrowing. And God's people are anything but faithful. God's people descend into idolatry and treachery and division. Human sacrifice that leads to civil war. And the rest of the scripture demonstrates the truth of verse 19. That people aren't able to serve the Lord. He's holy. He's holy other. And people are too sinful. The glorious uh, thing about the book of Joshua is that while Joshua lived, I'm coming into close now, God's people served faithfully. Look with me at verse 31. Israel served the Lord throughout the lifetime of Joshua and of the elders who outlived him and who had, the, who had experienced everything the Lord had done for Israel. That's great, right? I think the book of Joshua is, is overall Joshua seen in a positive light. But the reality is the problem was that Joshua died. And Tim Keller, uh, the late Tim Keller, in a book of his on prayer, writes, the huge unanswered question of the Old Testament is how is God going to be both just, the holy God that he is, and merciful to forgive sins? That was the problem that, that Joshua presented to them, wasn't it? He's, he's holy, and if you commit sin, where's forgiveness? The Amazing Hope is um, recorded for us in Jeremiah 31. We won't go there now, but um, it's, a, it's a familiar passage to many of us. Many of us uh, know the second half, but the first half speaks of this renewed life in, 
in the land of Israel. It's a life of abundance and overflowing. There's grain and oil and cattle and music and tambourines and dancing. It's a picture of longevity and life and fruitfulness and fullness and faithfulness of God's people. It's beautiful. Go home and read it this afternoon. It's glorious. And the second half then is this. The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel and the people of Judah. Not like the one that they've just broken when they came out of Egypt. This is the covenant I will make with the people of Israel declares the Lord, I will put my law on their minds and I will write it on their hearts, this great covenant promise. I will be their God and they will be my people for I will forgive their wickedness and remember their sins no more. And the mediator of this glorious new covenant is the one who can forgive our sins because he bore his, our sins in his body on the tree. Our Joshua, the Lord Jesus, is our covenant mediator and he bridged the gap of the holiness of God and the wretched sinfulness of man by becoming a baby, the glorious God, the incarnation. And he makes us righteous before God by imputing, by declaring a righteousness over us that's not our own. He gives us his untarnished, spotless record so that we can stand before God as holy, as righteous, in his holiness, in his righteousness. And his ability to serve the living God as the servant has eclipsed our inability. How can you know that you're going to go on serving the Lord? How can you know that you can be faithful to him? You look to Jesus. And it's in dynamic, living, spiritual union with him, our living head, that we're empowered to increasingly live out the covenant faithfulness that's required of his people. And that's how the nations are going to come to know God. That's how uh, one of Barry's longings is that people would hear the message of the gospel and that people would come and know. That's our desire too, right? It's every Christian's desire. Every, everyone who knows the living God wants people to come and know him too. And unlike Joshua, our mediator lives forever and he'll never die. Let's pray. Uh, God of unmatching grace and mercy, God of uh, lavish kindness uh, and unending uh, worth. We want to bring our praise before you. We thank you uh, that by your spirit you've given us eyes to see Jesus. We thank you for your lavish kindness towards us. Uh, We thank you for the forgiveness of sins. We thank you for uh, the promised inheritance that is ours where we see you face to face, uh, free from corruption in, in a renewed heavens and earth. But we pray, Lord God, uh, that until that time, until uh, you return or we come to be with you, that our lives would increasingly reflect uh, the path of our Savior, uh, that our pattern will be one of obedience, loving joy, and exclusive service to you, and that you would get all the glory. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.